everyone, this is Ted Rubin here on the World of Speakers podcast with Ryan Foland. Had an amazing time talking, wrestling, parenting, this dad won't quit, no let up, return a relationship, and how to get more speaking gigs. Welcome to the World of Speakers podcast brought to you by Speaker Hub. In each episode, we interview a professional speaker and reveal their very best tips and tricks. You'll learn to improve your presentation skills, keep your audience engaged, and learn how to grow your business to get more gigs and make more money. Here's your host, Ryan Foland. Ahoy, everyone. We are back, and today we have a special show because you are going to get into the conversation with myself and Ted Rubin. Now, Ted is most famously known for his philosophies on return on relationships, and that ties into not letting up and being a dad that just won't quit. Ted, welcome to the show. How are you, sir? Uh, Ryan, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, I'm excited for this conversation. I've been looking forward to it. And so glad that Samantha Kelly, uh, the tweeting goddess, introduced (laughs) us. Yeah, she was great. We had a lot of fun. And I'm sure we're going to have fun here. So let's kick it off with storytelling. And as you are aware, storytelling is a huge part of any type of communication. As humans, we love stories. And I think it's fun to hear stories. So if I only had a story or a series of stories from your past, that I was going to use to introduce you to somebody. As in, hey, you got to meet this guy, Ted. He was on my show. What's he all about, Ryan? Well, this one time, and we can kind of unpack that and get to know you a little bit at the top of the show here before we pick your brain for all of your unconventional wisdom on speaking. Um, Well, I think that sounds great because anybody that knows me knows that I love storytelling. I find it's a really important part of brand building, personal and business. And I tell a lot of stories when I speak. So, you know, that's a funny question because how do you tell a story you know, or pick a story from your past that really represents who you are. Well, you know, I grew up with a dad that I really believe this whole return relationship philosophy kind of started with him. My dad was a great family man and a great friend. And, you know, I always say I try to lead by example versus telling people what to do. Now, of course, we all speak, we all write. So in some ways, we're telling people what to do. But, you know, if you don't walk the walk, it's difficult to do that. And and my dad, you know, I grew up with this guy that would pull over in the middle of the street to pick up garbage cans, to fix things on people's lawns, to help our neighbors, to shovel their walks when they couldn't do it. And of course, I was young and I observed this for a long time until I got to like, I don't know, nine or 10, when my dad would pull over and go, okay, get out of the car. You know, I'm driving, take those garbage cans. And I remember looking at him and saying, (laughs) But we don't even live here and we don't know these people, you know, really kind of the way a young kid would think uh, because you kind of think of your own world. And he's like, well, first of all, there are other people that are going to be coming by here and it's going to get in their way. Second of all, why wouldn't you want to help people? And he'd always say to me, do for others without expectation of anything directly in return. And again, as a kid, you go, well, okay, like it's nice to be nice. And I talk a lot about being good to people. I also think I learned that from my dad. But, you know, he said, look, you know, if you want to think about it personally, or you want to think about how does it affect you, is that it'll come back to you because you build yourself a reputation. I like to say now that I've developed these concepts that a brand is what you do, a reputation is what people remember and share. And I think I learned that early from my dad. He says, you know, people come to know you as someone that wants to do for people. And then, you know, as a segue, I got very, very lucky and I, I wrestled all through junior high and high school and started. Hey, me too. Yeah. I mean, we are an interesting breed. So now we're all of a sudden connected. Like I've spent years on the mat. So, well, 
What weight did you wrestle at? Uh, well, dep- depends what year, of course. I, I, start, <laughs> I started out in seventh grade wrestling, weighing 63 pounds and wrestling in the 72-pound weight class. Okay. And I went one in six. And the good news is I won my last match. Now, this is a great segue into the story. So my wrestling coach became a very, very big, important part of my life. You know, my dad worked a lot. He, we had three boys in the family. His dad passed away at a young age. So, you know, it was always important that that he was earning. And my coach was incredibly proactive in our lives as a mentor. And by the way, he is like my second father. Him and his wife are like my second parents. I see them every year. They live in Pine, Arizona now, about two hours outside of Phoenix. And my coach taught me this whole idea, which became part of my life later, about no let up. That, you know, he used to say to people like, you know, that it never ends. There's no let up in life. And there was always a wise ass in the, in the crowd that would raise their hand. And what he'd say is that, you know, there, there's always the next match, the next tournament, the next challenge in your life, helping other people. And when some wise guy would say, what about when you die? He'd say, well, then your legacy would on. And this uh. <laughs> message just really lived with me. My mother was a teacher in the school system and she really encouraged this relationship And it kind of took me through my whole life. What's led into the final part of my story is that I've had this major challenge of keeping my daughters in my life. Back in 2007, 2008, my ex-wife tried to take the kids away from me, and I spent three to four years and seven figures fighting to keep them in my life. It became pretty well known because it hit the newspapers when she was the first woman in the United States to be convicted of child alienation, which is a problem for a lot of families. And, you know, it was people used to say to me, how do you, like, how do you keep at this? It's day after day. I had to stop working for about six months. I had to find a career that I could integrate both. And it, like, I just looked at them and said, you know, there's no let up. Like, you just don't stop. And that's what led into this dad won't quit, which became, because even to this day, my daughters are 22 and 24 or approaching that. And it's still a challenge for them to have a relationship with me. And, you know, started with my dad about doing for others and how important relationships are and how important it was not to worry about the recognition kind of led into my coach, who is still a major part of my life, who just taught me about, you know, always persisting, never giving up, that there will always be challenges. And then it led into this challenge with my daughters, which still exists today. My younger daughter is graduating from UPenn this May. I'm, I'm having dinner with her the night after her birthday in, in Philly next week. And I just, no matter how my expectations have to change, no matter what I get, I know that I will always do everything I can to influence them, to help them, to be there to support them. My older daughter hasn't talked to me for over a year. My ex finally kind of got to her. She graduated college, said, you're not paying for anything anymore. If anybody wants to hear about this, there's a a video out there called The Dad That Doesn't Quit. It's on my YouTube channel. It's on my Facebook page. Just Google The Dad That Doesn't Quit. Maybe add Ted Rubin to it. It'll come up. And, you know, I talk about my coach. I talk about my dad. I talk about my daughters. Wow. And in all of that together, you know, it, it made me think of like a New York Stock Exchange, you know, with the ups and the downs and it constantly in fluctuation with with all these different inputs and, and outputs and you are literally just fighting the market and you are, as we all are, sort of victim to our outside circumstances. But the one thing it sounds like you've really taken control over is not only how you respond to it, but your attitude and this sort of relentless persistence in doing what, you know, is is what you know you need to do and not worried about the return, but focused more on the relationship. So that's very much an interesting story. I feel like 
I know you pretty well now just based on that. Well, either you know me or you're very intuitive. I love what you just said because you hit right on the mark of what I talk about all the time. You can't change necessarily or control what others do, but you can always be in charge of how you react to it. And I've learned a, a lot about from my daughters, about myself, about other people, about marketing, about how you have to learn to communicate with people the way they want to be communicated with, which I think parents and marketers have to learn. And I got to tell you, Ryan, by what you mentioned, I think a lot of that, and I find this a lot, that when you're a wrestler, you learn this stuff because you're the only one out there. And as Mike, again, I'm sure you heard this from your coach, you can't affect how hard that person trains or what they do, but you can always take control of what you do and how what your attitude is to each match and to your life. So... Yeah, my wrestling coach was actually Tito Ortiz oh, wow. um, in Huntington Beach. Uh, he was my coach at Marina High School, and he was super impactful in my life. And talk about a passionate person. I mean, you see his passion now, and he's a, a little bit bigger than life because of all of his fame and success. But yes. but I will never forget, and whenever I'm in that like the deep, dark spot or moment or when things fall apart, I feel like I'm on the mat getting squished, <laughs> about to be pinned or something like that. And you know, your eyesight is on the mat, and you're looking over and he would just be on the ground, on the side, like just fists, just screaming, just going, just you just don't let up. And all I just remember would be seeing him and feeling that energy and just going, Rah! like just finding some inner strength to just flip it around and turn the pin the other way. Or, or even if I ended up losing, it was, it was always so powerful to have that somebody else helping you to tap into what you have you just might not recognize, right? It's it's crazy. I, I can't believe, I, I know we're hitting a little sidetracked here, but that's fine. I, I, I can't believe that you just said that because th those are exactly my experiences. I mean, my senior year, I'm in a divisional tournament. My coach was had to get over to another mat. He was, it was probably the first time he wasn't on the side of my mat for my match. Yeah. And I'm repping some kid that I crushed during the season. And going into the third period, I'm losing. And my coach comes walking over. And he, and like, you know, I, I know you've seen this expression, like the hands go to the side, the eyes go down the head. <laughs> and it's kind of common. It's like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> yeah. What do we spend all this time training for? Why did I kick your ass for the last six months just for this moment? <laughs> right. And you know, you have that, that moment they can talk to you in between periods yeah. and the other kid and I'm, 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 I'm like losing it. And the coach is looking at me and the kid's doing one. You remember when the other kid would do the running around the mat to make it look like they weren't tired? Oh, yeah. And you're sitting <laughs> on the edge and you're heaving trying to get air in. Yeah. And I'm looking at my coach. I'm going, coach, I, I don't know what's going on. I'm done. And, you know, he looks at me and says, you're not done. All the training, everything we've done, it's just get out there. And like the minute I touched the guy in the third period, it's like it all changed. And I, I ended up yeah. pinning him like around 30 seconds later. And it's just like you said, it's that kind of that look. And when same thing for me, when I'm going through something like that, I can see my coach just looking at me going, what the fuck? Yeah, no, I literally still like that just gave me the goosebumps. Like it brings you back. I don't think for those of you listening, you're like, what are you guys talking about? Getting so animated about wrestling. This is not WWF wrestling, by the way. <laughs> okay. This is like, I don't know, the most one-on-one, -on -one, the most humanistic, battleistic you against somebody who's at your pretty much the same weight, unless they're really good at cutting weight and building back up. But it's, it's just such a pure, I don't know, there's something that is so, makes you feel so alive. You get so broken, you get so beaten. You, you just, I don't know, it's, it's crazy. So for those of you who are not wrestlers, yes, we're having a wrestler <laughs> moment. But I think this is a great transition because when you're trying to become a speaker, you might not think of it as really you against one person. You might think about it like you against the world or like all these other people that are in your same class, your same weight. They're talking about the same topic at the same conferences. And you're kind of in a, in a, 
pseudo match against them. I want to know if you were my wrestling coach and wrestling, I mean, speaking, what would some of the unconventional wisdom that you would take a knee and talk to me about in the mat in the third period, right before I go out there knowing that everything's on the line? (laughs) Okay. Well, you know, that's a little different than how do I quit my persona or who am I or what am I sharing with people? But that direct I'm out there is don't rely on your pre-prepared presentation. Always pay attention to the audience and get feedback from them. Now, Hmm. sometimes that's difficult. Now, usually not in the beginning of your career because it's unlikely you're going to be on a stage with 5,000 people in the audience with lights shining in your face when you're first starting, the odds are you're going to be on a smaller stage with less things going on. And it's easier to do this, but I always look at the audience and I always tell anybody who's getting up there for the first time that I look for cues. I look for, are they understanding the points I'm making? Are they nodding in their heads? Are they paying attention to me? And what I try, and I know this is hard and I'm not expecting that somebody the first time can necessarily do it. I will tell you, I wasn't able to do it my first time, but I've always been pretty good in front of an audience. But the best advice I got was don't have a pre-prepared script, which was perfect for me because I hate pre-prepared scripts. So getting that from someone who was a professional and who had seen me speak helped. Um, Keep your slides simple. Use them as just a lead into what you want to talk about and have the ability to change on the fly if the audience is not responding to what you're saying. Now, in some ways, that's advanced advice, although I will tell you that a lot of speakers that are advanced in their career on speaking from a pre-prepared script can't do this because they become so used to speaking from what they prepared. So to me, for beginners, it's actually easier to learn because you don't have something to unlearn. Right. But that's like, as far as project yourself, be empathetic, and then you know, maybe we'll get into some personal things, but you know, I am not the speaker that stands straight up, shoulders back, head cocked. I think that's when people create who they are instead of actually being what they are or who they are. Gotcha. Okay. So, so I'm going to step back. I just got so excited about the wrestling. I went to like the final match and the, and the big time and the, and the big lights and everything. And that was a great answer for that. Maybe let's reel it back and let's talk about where the real work happens, which is when you're practicing, when you're training, when you're drilling. So reeling it back for those people who are maybe more in the beginning side or for people who are really advanced and want to get better by going back to the basics, what would some of the drills or training or advice be, you know, maybe before you get to stage? What are some of the things that you've done that helped you to have this kind of off the cuff and authentic feel and vibe when it comes to the finals? Well, I'm, you know, I don't know if this compares directly to wrestling, uh, you know, because obviously in wrestling, you really need practice is really important. But then again, it can relate because scrimmaging is important. So I'm really a believer in just doing it. Okay. Anybody that asks me about speaking, I say, just do it. Just jump in, pick a small innocuous event and get up in front of people and talk. Even if it's just in your company, even if it's volunteering to start a conference or start a meeting. And being that person that starts a meeting for people and goes through the agenda or does something, I think get make it like you're at a cocktail party or a networking event and just hold forth like you would if there was if someone asked you a question about a topic you're passionate about. So, you know, I think in speaking, there's nothing like getting up in front of people. It's not about getting up in front of a mirror. And again, remember, this is my take. Uh, I want to be really clear about yeah, that. Yeah. This is how I view it. I know there are other people out there who are tremendously successful, who practice over and over again and read their speeches. I don't do that at all. 
to me, those speakers, I'm impressed by them, but I've never wanted to be them. Now, here's, here's a question for you, kind of going back to your past. Have you always been an off-the-cuff kind of person? Is that something that is just like part of your personality? Have you always, whether it's a school presentation or something else, have you always just had this skill of being comfortable off the cuff? That's a great question. I wouldn't necessarily say I've always had the skill, but I've always had the desire to do it that way. Okay. Part of it, to be honest, came from laziness when I was young. <laughs> you know, like, I, I mean, it's funny because I wasn't lazy when it came to practice or wrestling, right. but I was lazy when it came to schoolwork. And part of that is because I was fortunately very bright. Schoolwork came easy to me. So, you know, preparation was not something I loved, but that also led me to discover very quickly that I was very good off the cuff. And, yeah. and then I discovered that I was actually better when I was off the cuff because it's what made me different. Anybody can train to speak in front of an audience, repeat it over and over, push out the material, but learning to be able to read an audience and deliver the content that people like, you know, takes a lot of practice. And for me, and again, it was a tip I got from someone else who said to me, you know, you're so good when someone just asks you a question around the wrestling matter in class or when a teacher just picks on you and you come up with something. It's something I think you should hone. And then later, and I'm just going to jump ahead a little bit, when I started really speaking and earning off it, and I do a lot of things, speaking is not my main form of income, I got worried. You know, I'm doing this all the same a lot. I'm using the same presentation. And a guy who I really respected Raj Seti, who I was talking to about it, said, Ted, this is what you do best, and it's what separates you from the pack. Your ability to read an audience, your ability to deliver for that specific audience, and your ability to not have to prep in that respect. Your prep is getting to know who you're speaking to, knowing who the audience is. And the fact that you do a lot of the same things again and again makes you very good at it. And people don't necessarily want someone who's going to try something new with their audience. They want someone that's going to get up before audience and know they're going to knock it out of the park. So, you know, for me, yes, it's something that I was naturally good at. I've always been a free talker. I've always been comfortable once I get into a conversation. And truth be told, it's how I develop most of my content. You know, I tell mm. people all the time who say, hey, I'm not a good writer. And look, I'm not a writer either. I'm a talker. I'm a reactor. And the vast majority of my content comes when I see other content produced and I react to it. So I learned early on the easiest way for me to produce blog posts and, and social posts was when I read something someone else wrote and either agreed or disagreed strongly. And then I would start writing a comment and I would turn those comments into blog posts. And it kind of leads me to a little extension of this question is the way I get the vast majority of my speaking gigs and the way I've gotten people to allow me to try speaking back to the beginning was because of all the content I produce and all the opinions I publish because people wanted to hear me expound upon them in front of an audience. That's interesting. And this is actually a really perfect transition uh, in order to sort of dive into that. Now, real quick on the topic of this idea that you had this off the cuff as a natural result of maybe being lazy and taking these opportunities off the cuff. I saw somewhere that you, you do hosting. Do you actually, is that something you still do by choice or by just design hosting different events? I MC 40 plus events a year. Okay, I want to talk with you about that for a second. I loved MC as well. I actually call myself the ginger MC <laughs> because I'm ginger and it just sort of works. <laughs> but I wanted to know your experience with hosting as kind of a gateway drug to learning how to be more off the cuff because there's nothing more exciting for me than hosting where 
you're literally, I don't know what I'm saying half the time before I say it. And that's what's exciting. And that's what creates the energy. And that's what you're able to vibe and feel off of. So maybe speak on how, you know, hosting has been something to sharpen your acts of off the cuff and how it's translated to you speaking more essentially. Well, there's so many things that go into that. So first of all, I've been very fortunate for the last six years. I'm in my sixth year. I've been emceeing events for a company called Brand Innovators. So they do about 60 to 70 events a year, and I have an annual contract with them. I probably do 65 to 70% of their events. My deal with them is whenever I can show up, I do. Awesome. And it's a retainer deal that I get paid whether I speak in a month or I don't. So it's also been a great stage for me for many reasons. Number one is it puts me, my brand marketer, a Rolodex, if anybody in the audience even knows what that word means, <laughs> let's say contact list, because yeah. a lot of your audience probably doesn't know what a Rolodex is. <laughs> um, but it expands every single month of every single year because the audience is brand marketers and it's also vendors who are there to work with the brand marketers. So number one, it's a great relationship thing for me. Number two is over the years, I've come to absolutely own their stage. I can talk about anything I want anytime I want, including personal things, politics, whatever. So back to your question, it's allowed me to hone things because I try out different things. Anytime I want to do a keynote for them because they have day-long events, if I say, hey, I want to try something new, they give me a slot. Even if they don't give me a slot, I like to say when I have the mic, I own the stage and I can talk about anything I want. And I am not the MC you hire. And I'll tell you who's great at this part. Jay Bear is great at emceeing when there's a lot of prep involved, when you have to do research, when you have to know everything about your speakers. I don't do that. I am the off-the-cuff MC. Yeah. I'm the guy that gets on the stage to open and talks about the daily news or what's going on or something that's bugging me or something that I'm keying on this year because I think it's important, like like customer experience with your marketing or, or relationships or just not sending out a LinkedIn uh, request without a personal note or whatever it happens to be. And then I bring the the speakers together. I talk when someone gets off stage, if there's time, I talk about what they talked about. I might make commentary on it. I am known, my blog is called Straight Talk. I tell it like it is. The CMO of 800 Flowers can could be coming up and I can say, hey dude, just get those damn bots off your site because they're not ready for prime time and they suck and they're ruining customer experience as he's coming on stage. And it's expected because they know that's who I am. So for me, it's given me the opportunity to build relationships, to grow my contact list, and also to like talk about anything that's on my mind. And I can do it repeatedly throughout the day. So that's great. And then it's also given me the opportunity, you know, like you said, to get more comfortable. I, I do so many of them that I'm on stage all the time that, you know, stepping on stage now is easy. It's given me a great way to test out things, like you said, and it's given me a very strong voice to the community where I can speak about whatever's on my mind. Yeah, and it's a great example of how you know speaking isn't just necessarily a keynote on stage. It could be hosting. It could be asking a question at a conference. It could be leading a meeting. It yes. could be all these things. So I like this idea that it's all practice. And I like to say the one way to become a better speaker is just to speak more. And you can substitute speaker for anything, really. Uh, so I think that's that's refreshing. Let me jump in with something because you just made a point. But first, I want to say the other great thing is if there's anybody on this call, and I'm assuming there are people that speak publicly, you'll know there's never, ever a time that you come off the stage that you either think you sucked 
but the audience is going crazy <laughs> because you know all the mistakes you made, but nobody else does. Right. Like that's one of the biggest and most important key lessons is don't worry when you make a mistake because nobody but you knows it. And then I bet you there's never a time you come off the stage and it's like the Seinfeld episode where George has the great comeback, but he doesn't use it in the meeting when someone insults him. And then he's <laughs> desperate to get back into that meeting. We all come off the stage and there's one more thing we forgot to say. We want that mic back so badly <laughs> but guess what when you're emceeing you get the mic back in 20 or 30 minutes <laughs> yeah. and so you don't have to worry about those things you might have forgotten to say and that's one of the things that i love about it i also think what it is for all speakers if you get the chance to do it it gives you that ability to get back on the stage and even though you can't necessarily do that next time you have a keynote it kind of gives you some closure on that it makes you feel like like a little bit better about that because you've got your second chance and your third chance and your fourth chance when you're up on the stage all day. And I want to be perfectly honest that the next thing I wanted to say about something you just said, I totally forgot what it was. So we can move on. That is a, per <laughs> that is a perfect transition to the kind of the final section here about how you get more stage time, how you've found more stage time. I mean, landing a deal with brand innovators to have a retainer for a yearly host, that's rad, right? There's all these things that you've stumbled upon, but if you were going to be coaching somebody who's coming up through the ranks, what are some of the best pieces of advice you can give them when they hit that speaking mat? Well, first of all, here's the toughest transition. The toughest transition is going from non-paid speaker to paid. Yeah. And it's hard because what you have to learn is that saying no defines you way more than saying yes. So in the beginning, most speakers start out with unpaid gigs, usually unpaid, zero pay, no travel, no nothing. Sometimes it'll cost them money. <laughs> They're actually paying for it, right? Well, that happens a lot with companies. Like, So there's one, that, that's a great point, by the way. So if you're in a company that's a vendor that pays to have a speaking time, volunteer, be the one that speaks, be their go-to person because you're not paying their pain. They're also thrilled that you're doing it. Yeah. They're paying for your travel and it gets you up on a stage. Then the transition comes when people see you on the stage and say, hey, Ryan, you know, I, I know you were here for XYZ company last time, but would you like to come to this event and speak? And of course, you're so thrilled. You accept it without even thinking about pay. <laughs> and then, you, then you, you might find out there's no pay, there's no travel. The next transition is they will usually start paying for your travel. Which is great. By the way, the best time to start this is when you're working for a company and have a salary. Yeah. So you've got a full-time gig. And a lot of companies, even if it's not specifically for them, if they're smart, and if you're smart because you weave some of your company stuff into it, or at the very least, your name and your title puts their name in front of an audience. Yeah, brand halo. It's really, a lot of these companies will let you do that. But then there comes a time where you start getting asked to speak a lot, where you're going to have to put your foot down and say, I need to be paid. And what's going to happen is you're going to lose some gigs. Okay? People are going to say, we don't have a budget for it. And there's going to come a point, and this is a critical point, if you want to make money, is you have to say no. And it's going to be damn hard. You want to go to that event. It's a great stage. And I got to tell you, most of the big events, even a lot of the speakers you think are getting paid, are not getting paid. Social media marketing world. He doesn't pay speakers. Yeah. Great example, yeah. And there's a whole bunch more of them. You know, content marketing world and all these others. I mean, sure, the biggest names get paid, but a lot of the guys who you think are big names getting paid, they're not. And a lot of these guys are speaking in a lot of places not getting paid. Now, either they're hoping they can turn it into pay, they're looking for the to be in front of the audiences, 
They have a great time in these events. So they go to the party. That's great. But it's not going to help you make money. Or they're driving business you know, to their company. So like Jay Baird, I'm sure in the beginning, and I can't speak for him, but he had a great purpose and he was very successful at it. He drove a lot of uh, business to convince and convert. And then he turned it into an amazing speaking career. Scott Stratton was driving business to his agency until he realized he could make more money just speaking. And he became probably one of the most successful guys in the business. Brian Kramer was driving business to pure matter until things change. And and now I know Brian gets paid when he speaks because that's a big part of his business. So, you know, when I was at Elf Cosmetics and I was at Collective Bias, I spoke a lot and didn't get paid because I was, it was good for my company. It was great that, you know, I started getting my travel paid for. But when I, when I left Collective Bias, even though I was still a shareholder, I made it very clear to people. When I first got asked to speak at Brand Innovators, it was because MasterCard was doing an event at their place. Brand Innovators does events at major brands. I had been doing consulting for them. They told them they wanted to speak. Brand Innovator spoke to me, said, we'd love to have you. I go, great, here's my fee. They said, we don't pay fees. I said, then I don't speak. This is <laughs> a big part of my business now. At that time, MasterCard stepped up and paid my fee, and then Brand Innovators loved me. I built a very quick relationship with Mark Sternberg and Brandon Gutman, the two founders, and they immediately asked me to come on as their basic keynote speaker, as an MC. It, it, it segued into MC within a month of that. I became their acting CMO because they needed some help with their marketing, and now it's been a six-year relationship. So you know, you just got to find that point. But when you make that transition, you've got to be firm. And the same thing goes with when you raise your fee. So you ask for $2,500 and someone says yes. Well, if people start saying yes very quickly, that's when it's time, in my opinion, to start raising your price. But at some point, you'll hit a wall. I've done this three or four times in my career. I'm raising my price. All of a sudden, I'm not getting gigs. And all of a sudden, I'm realizing, okay, I might have to take it back a notch. Right, right. You know, and then I got some great advice about how to do that from Seth Godin. Instead of reducing your price, give extra signed books, go to a VIP dinner, meet with some of their senior executives for a luncheon. So then you don't have to necessarily reduce your price, but you can give them more value for the dollar. But again, you have to pay, just like you're paying attention to audience, you have to pay attention. And this is, look, I'm lucky. I have a sales background, but it's what any good salesman knows. You know, you have to see where you hit the wall. And then how can you take that back a little bit without looking like you're weak? And I just remembered what I wanted to say before, so I'm going to throw this in before I forget Do it. it. Do it. A great way to get speaking experience and to build your personal brand is to ask questions when there's an audience and there's people on stage. So my advice is, and this is so important. So many people stand up. They don't say their name. Right. They don't say their company. I make everyone do this at Brandon and their events. And we do it because we want people at the events to know who's asking the questions. But I look at these people. I go, how could you not say your name and company or at least your name and a one-liner about who you are? Because you're all of a sudden now, you, everybody's here talking about how they want to build their personal brand. And now you're in front of people. So go to the biggest events. Before you go do your research, look at who's speaking and what their topics are and create some questions in advance that are intelligent so you don't have to do it on the fly. Of course, if they end up not making sense to the event, make sure you're aware of that. And then be, be up, get there early, sit up front, be the first one that raises your hand with a question. And now you get a microphone and an audience of thou- hundreds or thousands of people to say, hi, I'm Ted Rubin from Collective Bias. I'd like to know what your thinking is on, you just got, this guy's getting paid 20 grand to do it. You just got that audience for free. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And a, and a trick too for that is making sure that you scope out where the microphone will be for the questions yes. and sitting close oh to that because the first one of the mic is always good. And if you're stuck in the middle, you're going to be, oh, oh, excuse excuse me. Yeah, that's that's a brilliant strategy of speaking. That's leveraging a $20,000 stage and probably 3,000 people that now are on your radar. And do it at every event. Don't only save it for the big ones. Go to any event you attend Come prepared with a few questions for a few of the speakers and get your hand up. And by the way, at a lot of events, nobody raises their hand. It's not hard to be that guy that gets the first question because it's the first question that starts the avalanche of other people feeling comfortable asking questions. Yes, yes. And one thing that I love that you do, and I'm a big fan of this too, is tweeting what I'm thinking. Yes. And I think people are not leveraging social in a way in real time at these conferences I accidentally stumbled upon something that I now do all the time, which I call a tweet NATO. I was actually at the social media marketing world in 2016, I think. And I took all these crazy notes and I was super inspired and I did nothing with them. So then the next year, I'm like, forget that. I'm not going to take notes. I'm just going to tweet all the things that I would normally do. And then there was this app that I, an applet that I was able to basically tag all of my tweets. So I had all my notes publicly. And then I thought whoever likes the tweets the most, then I can see that's the best information to then create content. Long story short, I'm on the train coming back up home because I had to leave before the final big rah-rah. And I got all these messages and phone calls. People are like, congratulations. I'm like, what? They're like, you just got named the top mentioned speaker of social media marketing world. I was like, what are you talking about? I didn't even speak. I was just there as an attendee. And it was because I had so many tweets that got so much traction, people just assumed that I was speaking at that conference because I was so engaged. So the level of engagement, even from an audience, you can still build your brand at all these things. You know, I'm so glad you said that because it's something I forgot. I used to hijack conferences. So, you know, I don't go to conferences now unless I'm speaking, for the most part, unless I'm doing somebody a favor. Sure. But when I used to go to a lot of conferences for Open Sky, for Elf Cosmetics, for Collective Bias, whatever, I used to go there and I keep all my, my best tweets in my like file. So I like my own tweets whenever they're a content that I think is good, whenever I tweet out something that either I love or gets very well received, and I keep them in a file. And I used to go to events, and I would just put in the search, the topic that was relevant, whether it was blogging or, or marketing or social marketing, whatever, and then I would sit throughout the conference using their hashtag, just take, tweeting out more content throughout the conference. Yes. And the same thing. People are like, oh my God, like, wow. And I like the same thing, you know, the person who tweeted the most or this thing, and there's so many ways to get yourself recognized. And, you know, sometimes people say, oh, well, you know, that's cheating. Why is it cheating? It's my content. <laughs> and then I love the people that say, you know, you tweeted the same thing more than once. Why? Yeah. That's how people, why do you think people remember my content? Right. Because I do, I use it again and again and again. The same thing with your own hashtags. I watch all these young guys, they come up with their new hashtag. They use it for a month and then they abandon it. Well, nobody liked it. Dude, you've been doing it for two months. My hashtags are years in the making. And now I go to events and people go, hey, R&R. Hey, no let up. Hey, this dad won't quit. You know, hey, be good to people. That's how you build a brand. And even better is, uh, you know, earlier I used the word persona. And I don't create a persona. I am who I am. And I tell people, I'm not saying, look, there are some people that create personas and it works for them. But the reason I'm, I'm always on brand is my brand is me. Touche, my friend. And, you know, thinking of all the stuff we've talked about, we're going to close with what we started with, which is what you're known for, which is the return on relationships. And whether it's the relationship that you have as a father, as a coach, as a mentor, as a human being, as a speaker, building relationships with these conferences that you want to speak at, it all, everything 
basically could pull the yarn throughout this entire stitched conversation. And it all comes back to return on relationships. It's a long-term game that you're investing in, whether it's a hashtag that you don't ditch after two months to whether it's just relentlessly trying to raise your fees until you hit a wall. I really see how this all fits in together. Hashtag R on R. Exactly. You know, just so people can wrap their arms around a little bit. Now, I do have a site, returnandrelationship.com. There's no S at the end. I don't care if you say that. I just don't want people not to be able to find the site. Yeah. So it's returnandrelationship.com. And, you know, it has a lot what it's about. I also, every week, I publish somebody else's blog post on returnandrelationship.com as a return on relationship. I try to share other people's content. But just as a quick definition, you know, simply put, it's the value that's accrued by a person or a brand due to nurturing a relationship. You know, ROI is simple dollars and cents, but ROR is the value that will accrue over time through connection, loyalty, recommendations, and sharing. And I use it to define and educate companies, brands, and people about the importance of creating authentic connection, interaction, and engagement. And again, for a one-liner to make it simple, relationships are like muscle tissue. The more they're engaged, the stronger and more valuable they become. Wow. Well, fantastic. Ted, this has been a blast. I feel like we are kindred souls from the wrestling mat all the way to the stage to aggressively using Twitter to, <laughs> to have fun with it and not really caring. Uh, and and I think of all that you said, one of the things that resonates the most is this idea that you are not creating a brand persona. You are just yourself. And you know, I've got a book coming out in October called Ditch the Act, and I'm obsessed with that. The only way to really differentiate yourself is just to be yourself. So that is so refreshing to hear and just the no-nonsense straight talk about how to get on stage and, and how to not let up, whether it's on the mat or whether it's as a questionnaire <laughs> in an audience that you're not on the stage to a stage where you're presenting. So this has been a lot of fun, and I'm looking forward to staying in touch with you, seeing you online, uh, and maybe sharing the stage sometime. Well, I'll tell you what. I am emceeing a Brand Innovators event in Torrance, California on the 21st of this month. And I would love to have you as my guest if you're in town. I will be there. Count me in. That sounds great. And see, this is how it starts, people. It's just return on relationship, singular, not plural. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> no, this will be great. And again, thanks to the tweeting goddess. We'll make sure to tweet you up and, and shout you out as well. But, you know, I'm just, I'm jazzed. I'm pumped up. I feel like I'm ready to go out on the mat. I'm, I, I'm feeling like we got people a little bit inspired today. So that's great. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to bring you up on stage and I'm going to make sure to introduce you to the audience. Absolutely. I love it. All right. And if you wanted to point people to one place to find you online, what would that place be? TedRubin.com. Perfect. All right, buddy. Well, hey, I'm inspired. Let's just keep doing what we're doing and uh, we will see you on the flip side. Looking forward. Or specifically in Torrance. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody. Tune in uh, to other episodes. We've got so many of them with so many great people with great advice to help you become a great speaker. And this is myself, Ryan Fulland. Follow me on Twitter at Ryan Fulland. Jump in the conversation. Check out Ted Rubin at Ted Rubin on Twitter. Tweet us up and uh, we will see you around. Have a great day or night or evening or morning. Goodbye. <laughs>